Section 1 of The End of the Middle Age, 1273-1453, by Eleanor Constance Lodge. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 1. Germany and the Empire, 1273-1378, Part 1. Before 1273, the decline of imperial supremacy had already begun. The great emperors of the Hohenstaufen family, Frederick Barbarossa, Henry VI, and Frederick II, had done something in the past to revive the already weakening power of the empire and to maintain the theory of universal rule, but the fall of their dynasty was followed by disastrous disputes between the rival emperors, an epoch known as the Great Interregnum which did much to destroy the authority of monarch both in Germany and in Europe, and the period now opening was marked by still further decline in the ideal of imperial supremacy and in domestic power. In theory, the empire was still the Roman Empire. The emperor was direct successor of the Caesars, Semper Augustus, with temporal rule over the whole world, from the days of Frederick Barbarossa, the title holy had added a character of sanctity to the institution, had upheld the claim of the emperor to divine right to rule over Christian society, and had placed the Holy Roman Empire side by side with the Holy Catholic Church. Pope and emperor together were to exercise spiritual and temporal rule over the world and to form the one bond of unity in a Europe composed of masses of feudal states. This medieval ideal of universal authority had always been shadowy and unreal, but not without effect. Although England, France, and Spain, the most independent countries of Europe, had never really acknowledged the territorial supremacy of the emperor, and their kings had refused to do homage for their lands, they had never failed to recognize imperial precedents, and even in the 14th and 15th centuries, despite the discredit caused by the great interregnum, the emperor was still looked up to as an international power, and imperialist doctrines were still held by writers and students of the science of government. Thus, in theory, the emperor claimed the right to be recognized as the superior of all European kings and rulers, but in reality, Though his opinion might have had weight in the case of any question of international interest, only certain small states admitted his authority within their own borders, and the term empire came to have a definite territorial significance. At the close of the 13th century, France lay outside the imperial limits on the west, although her boundaries were more restricted than in modern days, and Provence, Burgundy, and Lorraine were all strictly parts of the empire. On the east, Poland and Hungary were still independent, and on the south, part only of Italy was considered as actually imperial land. Outside these boundaries, the emperor might perhaps command respect for his dignity, but could certainly not enforce obedience to his authority. There was also another aspect of the imperial position— Ever since the 10th century, the German monarchy had been attached to the Roman Empire, or in other words, the same man had always held the two dignities of German king and Roman emperor, and this with disastrous results. 
the interests of the empire and of the kingdom of germany were hardly ever the same and yet each was certain to suffer from anything which hurt the other for example when the emperor fought expensive wars in italy they in no way benefited the german kingdom but germany suffered very much from imperial quarrels with the papacy which brought her also into discord with rome again the fact that the german nobles were imperial vassals princes that is who held their estates straight from the emperor gave them an exalted sense of their own dignity and made them less ready to submit to the rules which he laid down in his character of king above all because the empire was elective the german monarchy became elective also and this system of choosing the ruler weakened the power of the crown so much that it was almost destroyed each emperor was supposed to go through four coronations this as a matter of fact he rarely did but the three most important crowns were generally assumed the german crown of aachen aix la chapelle only conferred strictly speaking the title of king of the romans the preliminary step for every emperor the crown of burgundy was of slight account and during our period charles the fourth was the only emperor who went to arles to obtain it the third crown of Italy, or Lombardy, was received at Milan or Monza, and chief of all, the real imperial crown itself could only be conferred at Rome and was held to bring with it that right of universal rule so splendid in theory, so feeble as we have seen in practice. Quite strictly, the emperor-elect was only king of the Romans until this important ceremony had been completed, but he could exercise full powers from the time of his coronation at Aachen, and it has generally been found convenient to give him his full title from the first with the death of the last representative of the great family of hohenstaufen which for more than a century had occupied the imperial throne there was great hesitation on the part of the electors to fill up the vacant office the right of choice had now become practically centred in the hands of seven great princes the archbishops of mayence or mainz treves or trier and cologne or Köln to represent the german church and four lay electors these latter ought to have represented the four great nations of which germany was composed franks schwabians saxons and bavarians but the duchies of franconia and schwabia no longer existed and the right was exercised by the count palatine of the rhine and the margrave of brandenburg in company with the dukes of saxony and bavaria in 1256 the votes of this electoral college had been divided between Richard of Cornwall, brother of Henry III of England, and Alfonso the Wise of Castile. The former was crowned at Aachen and paid an occasional visit to Germany, but never really took up his office. The Castilian king did no more than issue an occasional proclamation. The result was that with no restraining hand to check their encroachments and private feuds, the nobles became more unmanageable than ever, and feudalism ran rampant. When Richard of Cornwall died in 1272, the country was in such a state of anarchy and turmoil that all parties felt the need of a real ruler, and Pope Gregory X, who was anxious above all things to raise a new crusade, for which a German monarch would be the best leader, refused to recognize the claims of the unenergetic Alfonso and urged a fresh election. 
Therefore, in 1273, the question of a new emperor and a new king of Germany was seriously considered, and the choice of the electors fell on Rudolf, Count of Habsburg, a prince who they hoped was neither strong enough nor rich enough to rouse much fear or jealousy by his elevation. The new emperor was a man of considerable force and independence, or as Carlyle puts it, justness of insight, toughness of character, and general strength of bridle hand. Rudolf was not one of the chief princes of Germany, but an important count nevertheless, and from his hawk's castle in Switzerland, Habichtsburg or Habsburg, had spread his power widely throughout the old duchy of Schwabia. In person he was far above the average height, thin and upright, with small hands and feet, and a face whose eagle eye and hooked nose betokened strength and energy, while his thin determined lips were also capable of showing a keen sense of humor. Moderate in meat and drink, and zealous in warlike enterprises, he was the darling of his soldiers and commanded general respect and admiration. His piety is shown by the story of how he lent his horse to a poor priest who was carrying the host to a sick man and was afraid to cross a rapid torrent, and then refused to take back an animal which had carried so sacred a burden. Something of his promptness and resource is seen in the account of his coronation at Aachen. When the new sovereign was prepared to receive the homage of his princely vassals, there was no scepter forthcoming, and without it he could not bestow the fiefs. Delay might have been dangerous, for the nobles were none too friendly, but Rudolf averted any postponement of the ceremony by seizing the crucifix from the altar and declaring that the sacred sign of salvation for the world could well be his scepter. It was over a very complicated dominion that Rudolf was called to rule. Germany was split up amongst many great princes, both spiritual and temporal. Archbishops, bishops, and abbots held what were called scepter fiefs, since they were granted to them originally by presentation of a scepter. Lay lords, such as dukes, margraves, palgraves, and graves, had banner fiefs. All claimed to have no superior but the emperor, all asserted the right to exercise practically independent power in their own estates, to judge their own causes, levy their own taxes, and make their own wars as they wished. The breaking up of the old duchies of Franconia and Schwabia had largely increased the number of tenants-in-chief, landowners, that is, holding straight from the emperor himself, and quite insignificant nobles, small towns, and even villages often claimed the head of the empire as their immediate overlord. This multiplication of estates was aided by the very usual practice of dividing the property of a dead man amongst all his sons, instead of giving the whole to the eldest. Certain families were particularly important at this time. The Ascanian family ruled in the Mark of Brandenburg and the Duchy of Saxony. The House of Wittelsbach was also split into two branches. The elder possessed Upper Bavaria and the Palatinate. The younger ruled in Lower Bavaria. The Welfs held the Duchy of Brunswick. The Wetens, later possessors of Saxony, were now the lords of Meissen and Thuringia. Besides the Habsburgs themselves, there were two other families which were to become very prominent later on. The House of Luxembourg, in the territory of the same name, and the Hohenzollerns, the head of which, Frederick Burgrave of Nuremberg, was a cousin of Rudolf, 
and had been largely influential in securing his election. The three archbishops with electoral powers were the most important spiritual princes, though there were many others, for most great churchmen were territorial lords. By far the most powerful and dangerous temporal ruler of the time was Odokar of Bohemia, who in addition to his Slav kingdom had taken advantage of the interregnum to lay hands on Austria, Styria, Carinthia, and Carniola, which gave him a very firm footing in southeast Germany. Besides princes and bishops, the imperial cities were now rising to importance. Some of the larger towns of Germany, those of the south, which had prospered because of their proximity to the great trade routes, and those of the north, which carried on commercial enterprises by means of the Baltic and the North Sea, were independent of all but the emperor, were recognized as estates of the realm capable of representation in the imperial diet, and were called imperial cities. These diets were in theory feudal councils of the whole empire, summoned from all parts of the realm for common business, and composed of all the great princes and representatives of the imperial towns, but they met at present very irregularly, and had little control over the different states amongst which they were intended to bring some sort of unity. Rudolf showed his practical wisdom and clear-sightedness by realizing that it was impossible to maintain the old ambitions of the Hohenstaufen, that he would only waste his strength in vain endeavor should he strive to regain their Italian possessions, and that his true policy was to strengthen their position in Germany, to reduce the excessive power of his imperial vassals, and to build up a strong territorial position for his own family. To effect this, it was necessary to win allies, to secure the friendship of the Pope, to crush out rivals to his power. That he intended to emphasize the national character of his policy is shown by his persistent use of German and state documents and in the prosecution of business. When a messenger from the King of Bohemia began to explain his embassy in Latin, he was interrupted by the Emperor with the words, Lord Bishop, when you have only concern with priests, use your Latin, but amongst us speak German. Rudolf's first act was to gain friends by the marriages of his numerous family. On the day of his coronation, one daughter was wedded to Louis of the Palatine, another to Albert of Saxony. Next, he turned his attention to the Pope. Rudolf never went to Rome to receive the imperial crown, but he had a magnificent meeting with Gregory X at Lausanne, where he formally confirmed the cessions of Italian territory already made to the Pope, gave up any claims in the Angevin kingdom of Naples and Sicily, and together with many of his barons took the cross, in token that he would, on the first opportunity, fulfill the Pope's most fervent wish by undertaking a crusade to the Holy Land. The old policy of the Hohenstaufen was finally abandoned when the Habsburg monarch made a treaty of friendship with Charles of Anjou, their bitterest enemy, and promised to marry his daughter Clementia to Charles's grandson. Italian schemes certainly never tempted the prudent emperor. Italy is like the lion's cave, he was wont to say. One sees traces of the steps of those who go thither, but never of those who return. After these measures, Rudolf was ready to turn his attention nearer home. 
he felt his position in Germany would never be secure so long as he was threatened by the enmity of Ottokar of Bohemia. Ottokar had never recognized the election of 1277. His own vote had been rejected, although as king of Bohemia he had claimed the rights of an elector by virtue of his office of imperial cupbearer. He had also repeatedly refused to appear at the Diet to justify his possession of the German dukedoms of Austria, Carinthia, and Carniola, and had, of course, never done homage. Despite the rather doubtful support of some of the princes, the emperor found a good many German nobles ready to fight against the Slav king, and his army was sufficiently strong to cause the capitulation of Vienna and force Ottokar to come to terms. The latter consented to do homage for Bohemia and Moravia, to renounce his claims to Austria, Styria, Carinthia, and Carniola, and a double marriage was arranged between a son and daughter of each monarch. There is a story that this homage was to take place privately in a tent, and that during the ceremony the tent collapsed, revealing the proud Ottokar, magnificently dressed, on his knees before the pauper Count of Habsburg in his plain leather jerkin. Such an incident, however, is not only totally improbable, but quite unnecessary, as an explanation of the speedy failure of the present agreement. Neither side adhered fully to the terms, the marriage plans were never accomplished, and the discontent of many imperial nobles who found Rudolf less compliant than they had hoped gave Ottokar an opportunity. The death of Pope Gregory robbed the emperor of another ally, and in 1278 the Bohemian king renewed war with every hope of success. The two armies met on a great plain north of Vienna, known as the Marchfeld, and an engagement of great violence took place. Both kings fought in the thick of the battle. Rudolf at one moment was attacked by two knights at once, had his horse killed under him, rolled off into a stream, and was only rescued just in time from this awkward situation. Ottokar fought gallantly long after success was hopeless, but was killed treacherously in the end by two Austrian soldiers who attacked him after his surrender, in revenge for his execution of one of their relations for brigandage, and his adversary, who had commanded that his life should be spared, arrived too late to save him. The Bohemian defeat was complete. The kingdom was handed over to the guardianship of Odo, Margrave of Brandenburg, during the minority of the dead Odokar's young son, Wenzel II of Bohemia. Wenzel was married to Rudolf's daughter, Guta, and his sister, Agnes, to a son of the emperor. Austria and the two other disputed provinces were bestowed upon Rudolf's two eldest sons, Albert and Rudolf, with the exception of Carinthia, which was given to Meinhardt of Tyrol, whose daughter was married to Albert. This settlement was one of the greatest importance. From this date, Austria has remained the hereditary possession of the House of Habsburg and its chief source of strength. The foundation was laid on which the later fortunes of that great family were to be erected. Rudolf had done much to strengthen his family and something to consolidate the central power, but not so much as he wished. In vain he endeavored to win over the princes by marriage alliances and the people by suppression of private war. The nobles remained obstinate, the towns objected to his imperial taxation, and the organization of justice and government was still defective. Above all, he was unable to effect the greatest wish of his life 
the establishment of an hereditary monarchy. The electors feared the growing strength of the Habsburgs and refused to choose his son Albert as successor. When the emperor ended his toilsome career in 1292, Adolf of Nassau, a poor and insignificant count, was crowned at Aachen. Adolf's rule was short, his unexpected activity and determined attempt to strengthen his position speedily raised up enemies against him and gave a party to the disappointed Albert of Austria. Germany was divided into two camps, and the war which broke out was ended by the Battle of Gülheim. The death of Adolf, struck down something by Albert himself, gave the victory to the latter. The electors could no longer refuse him their votes, and he was proclaimed emperor as Albert I. The new sovereign was not prepossessing in appearance. Boniface VIII, when consulted as to the election, had objected to his uncouth and rustic mien. He was blind of one eye, rude and harsh of face, strong but ungainly in figure, and his indomitable energy was tempered by no gentleness and few scruples. His character has doubtless suffered by the legends concerning his rule in Schwabia, where he has been handed down to tradition as the great persecutor of the mountaineers in the district later to become Switzerland. But though there may be no grounds for the accusations of heartless cruelty and oppression, he was a stern, fierce man, not easy to check, when the interests of his family were at stake. End of section 1